Algeciras Podcast. Yet again, the United States has hit its debt ceiling. That's triggered a political battle in Congress. Republicans say spending must be cut to lift the borrowing cap. But President Biden insists there should be no preconditions. So what happens next? And what effect does all this have on the global economy? I'm Laura Kyle, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Well, for more on this, let's bring in our guests. And in California, William Lee, Chief Economist at the Milken Institute. In Washington, D.C., Laura Blessing, Senior Fellow at the Government Affairs Institute at Georgetown University. And in Seoul, June Park, Schmidt Futures Asia Fellow at the International Strategy Forum. A very warm welcome to all of you. William, first of all, tell us how the U.S. managed to amass this extraordinary amount of debt, $31.4 trillion. It's more than most of us can even imagine. It's a phenomenal number. And when you think uh, in terms of of, uh, trillions of dollars, it's really hard to wrap your head around it. One of the things that you have to remember is that governments finance themselves either through taxes and or by borrowing. Mm. And, And what has happened is that the huge level of government expenditures, whether it's for welfare programs or for defense or just for government administration, has has resulted in larger and larger governments over time. And these larger governments have had to fund themselves, and they've not always raised taxes to balance the budget. And once you have a deficit, um, there's only one way to finance it, and that is through borrowing. And so the U.S. deficits have accumulated over over many, many uh, uh, decades and, and centuries uh, going back to the revolutionary days. And so we now have a position where the U.S. has borrowed an enormous amount of money from its own people, but now about a third of the debt has been borrowed from the rest of the world. And what sets the U.S. apart from the rest of the world borrowing is that the U.S. has reserve currency. In other words, countries are willing to lend to the U.S. if they're paid back in U.S. dollars. Mm. And that gives the U.S. a special privilege, which in some sense has allowed the U.S. to run a much larger uh, deficit and much larger levels of debt outstanding than other countries. Okay. Uh, June, the whole world is in more debt than ever before. Give us an idea as how the U.S. ranks when you look at the situation as a whole. Well, because the Federal Reserve Board has been going on with the interest hikes, the rest of the world, coupled with the impacts from the Russian invasion of Ukraine, is seeing a, ro- a rise in prices generally. And uh, in the case of South Korea, the Bank of Korea keeps on in- raising interest rates following the uh, Federal Reserve Board's uh, designation of new uh, interest rates. So in general, a lot of countries, especially in the uh, industrialized world, uh, people are grappling with having to pay their bills and having to pay for uh, their uh, loans. And everything that has to do with a borrowing scheme has uh, a burden uh, on these people. And going further, uh, because the U.S. is in- intended, the Fed is intended to uh, raise further uh, the interest rate, we're going to see a, a huge burden on these people uh, around the globe. I think it's generally assumed, isn't it, Laura, that, that debt is not a good thing. But how much debt is too much debt? Well, we uh, have... Cre- debt is is a, a economic concept, but it's also a political one, too. Mm. And we've created structural deficits 
um, by, from a series of different government policies. I mean, the United States economy uh, has actually been fairly, government spending has been roughly about the same percentage of US GDP for you know multiple generations at this point. The policy decisions to uh, cut taxes in particular have caused a lot of structural deficits, but you have spending that have been priorities by both parties has created this current state of affairs. Um, economists certainly have different levels of debt that they find to be concerning, and I think everyone would consider the United States uh, debt right now to certainly be in that category. So, William, if the percentage of, G of jet debt to GDP in the US hasn't changed that much over the generations, why does the US bother having a debt ceiling? Yeah, the, the, the levels of spending and taxation relative to GDP have been roughly the same, but unfortunately, spending has always exceeded the level of, of revenues and taxes. And so what what's, you find in the case of the United States is that you are finding it difficult to finance more and more of this debt because the rest of the world and U.S. citizens in general uh, are less willing to hold on to this debt because of concerns about not getting paid off. Now, as I said earlier, by definition, U.S. is able to pay off its debts with U.S. dollars. And by printing more U.S. dollars, we can always pay off the debt. Unfortunately, one consequence of doing that would be higher and higher inflation, which is a consequence that no government is willing to accept. So, so one of the things that we have to consider in managing the levels of U.S. debt would be what is sustainable. And at the IMF, where I used to work, there are formulas that are used to calculate sustainable levels of debt. And with low interest rates as they are now, even though they're rising, they're still low enough that the U.S. levels of debt are more than sustainable. We are able to pay our interest payments uh, in a fairly easy fashion. Um, and, and so the, the question really comes down to the point of politics. What government is willing to cut back on expenditures in order to limit the amount of debt that's issued? And right now, the Republicans are asking the Democrats, you've got to cut back on entitlements, that is spending that is in, uh, made uh, made permanent by, by legislation. Um, and, the, and the Democrats are saying no, because our people need these entitlements, cut back on something else, cut back on defense. Uh, and so the debate in Congress is going back and forth about where to cut. And, and, and the debt ceiling has been used as a hostage mm. uh, for these discussions in order to get one side to move on or the other side to move. So, Laura, we, we've had uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen uh, implement some extraordinary measures to tide the US over until, she says, about June. So, as William says, the focus now is on Congress, isn't it, to sort out this issue for a longer term. And you've got this knot of hardcore Republicans suddenly in the House of Representatives on the one side, and you've got a very stubborn-sounding Joe Biden leading the Democrats on the other. So who's going who's gonna to give in? What's going to happen here? It's an excellent question. And we've seen a, this is, has become a particularly familiar dance that I think we've become a little bit too inured to. Um, mm. But we've been having kind of partisan fights uh, concerning the debt ceiling where a majority of one party is lining up against the other since 1953. I really want to underscore that this is 
you know, there is no kind of good era for the debt ceiling. Um, it, it's also not designed to result in fiscal restraint. Um, it was actually designed to give the Treasury more flexibility when it's originally created in 1917. And we get, we're also perfectly capable of raising it without having any effect on government taxing or spending. Um, of course, it's being used as a tool to uh, you know, try to bring people to the table in terms of having uh, some larger bar bargain. You know, Obama and, and Speaker Boehner, Boehner famously attempted and failed at a grand bargain uh, to rein in federal spending. But there's there's no requirement that you actually do any legislating uh, around spending and taxing. And I want to put taxing on the on the table too, not just spending cuts. Um, you know, because it's a it's a math problem. You can you can add and subtract, mm. uh, but uh, you know, we. This is not a circumstance that that is particularly fortuitous for you know calm, measured, uh, expert policymaking uh, when you engage in this level of brinksmanship. And in fact, it's never been used successfully as a tool for fiscal restraint. And in the meantime, June, the rest of the world watches and holds its breath. I mean, what do other countries think of the U.S. when it watches this brinksmanship play out in the eleventh hour? So uh, regarding the treasury bonds that are issued in order to uh, secure government uh, expenditure and budget, uh, many of the foreign countries that hold U.S. treasury bills, they've been scaling back, especially Japan and China in the past months has been, have been scaling back the amount of their T-bill purchases. And it also has to do with the fact that the Fed has been increasing its interest rate because the overall impact that the U.S. economy has onto other countries is very much correlated, associated with the amounts of uh, the, the liabilities that the U.S. has onto these countries. And it could be uh, the case that into the coming months, they could scale back even further. And we, we won't know until June uh, how, the, how the Congress would react uh, in response to uh, the debt ceiling. But chances are there would be very, very uh, harsh criticisms from China regarding the U.S. fiscal discipline. William, Japan, China, they hold most of the U.S.'s Treasury bonds, don't they? They've generally seen across the world as robust, as you mentioned earlier. But what if that's not so much the case now? What, what impact does that have? Well, let's, let's remember why it is that other countries hold U.S. Treasuries and U.S. debt securities in general. It's because they've been running uh, current account trade surpluses with the United States. In other words, mm. they've exported more to us than, they, than they've imported from us. And this imbalance has resulted in accepting U.S. dollars as payment for their exports. And in order to invest these dollars to earn some interest, they have bought U.S. Treasuries because of all financial assets that are denominated in U.S. dollars, it is the most safe, it is the most secure because of the U.S. creditworthiness, the belief that the U.S. will always pay its debt obligations, whether it's interest payments or, or rolling over the debt. Uh, but the debt ceiling puts that in question. And I think one of the things to remember also is that the U.S. Treasury security is the foundation of pricing for all other securities in the world. So, so the consequences for the rest of the world goes beyond the amount of debt that's held by Japan or, or U.K. Or, or, or China. It really is uh, the, at the basis of all financial instrument pricing. In other words, 
everything that's issued, whether it's in, in by emerging market countries or or by by the the the, the euro area, every security is priced based upon the price that's or credit worthiness of US treasuries. So so that's a very important thing to keep in mind is that the the jet the, the discussions about possibility of not paying US interest uh, is something that will shake the global financial markets to its very core because its very core is based upon pricing of US treasuries. And so so that is the 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 ramification that Chair, uh, uh, Secretary Yellen and, and every Federal Reserve chairman wants to avoid, which mm. is to shake the financial system of the global economy. Nearly all, June, nearly all the financial uh, assets on the planet, they're priced in relation, aren't they, to US Treasury bonds. So if the US does default, what would happen? The entire financial world becomes riskier? Well, uh, as we have seen in the case of the 2011 uh, debt ceiling crisis, I think there is uh, a possibility for a last minute cap increase, or there could be some other uh, avenues or, or policy action by the U.S. government that we don't know yet. It's uh, it's not something that we can anticipate at this moment because it will be played out until mm. June. But let's, but let's, let's look ahead and hypothetically say that that doesn't happen. That debt ceiling that does not increase. Would you do you agree with that, Laura? Do you agree that that scenario simply cannot exist? It would be catastrophic. Uh, it would be absolutely economically catastrophic to the United States as well as to the rest of the world. And historically, what has happened is the threat of that catastrophe has prompted action, even if albeit last minute action, in episodes such as 2011, where you know what had previously been a a you know partisan but not perilous pattern of raising the debt ceiling you know all of a sudden uh, it became genuinely dangerous um you know historically the 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 pattern is that these folks play with fire uh but come together at the last minute and we are shaping up to uh, have potentially our most dangerous episode yet uh just given the coordination challenges uh in Congress, uh, we have a lot of coordination difficulties in the House of Representatives, uh, which the world has seen play out with the speakership uh, vote or votes, rather, mm. I should say. Um, but and, you know, while the House is the more worrisome chamber, uh, you know, it's also going to be difficult in the Senate. You know, they've got 51 senators, uh, you know, unless you attach this to a reconciliation package, which, which won't happen. This is something that you're going to need 60 senators to vote for. Um, you know, in December of 2021, they had this historically highly unusual episode where they had a filibuster carve out. So they, you know, created a mechanism by which they could raise the debt ceiling without having a single Republican senator vote for it. Um, so the House will be particularly difficult, but the Senate is not going to be a cakewalk either. Um, we should we should genuinely be concerned, uh, even though historically this has been raised. But, uh, you know, the, the world and, you know, the, the, the press is right to be paying a lot of attention to this. Um, this is an important issue to educate people about. But the, the thing that I struggle to get my head around, William, is that it doesn't have to be this way. It could quite simply not have a debt ceiling. I mean, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has said that she would support getting rid of that ceiling, but President Biden has said he is against it. Can you explain to us why people want to keep it? Well, let's remember, when you asked the question, what would have happened if the U.S. did not raise the debt ceiling? Well, it happened in 2011. 
Um, and, and what happened was stock markets crashed around the world. Uh, all asset prices, the value of these financial assets started to crash because the, the basis of its pricing on U.S. Treasuries was put in doubt. So that's the financial disaster that the world wants to avoid. The U.S. had a triple A rating status on its securities, and it became double A by, by Standard & Poor's. So the U.S. really paid a huge price for that kind of uh, recalcitrance in not raising the debt ceiling. Now, why is it that every politician wants to keep that uh, around? Why don't ju we just raise the debt ceiling to be five times the level of debt that we have now to give it more room the way they do in Denmark? Mm. Uh, or, but, but the reason why is because every minority party and Democrats, Republicans together both realize they will be the minority at some point. It gives the minority party in the United States leverage to get its uh, political agenda across and, and pass legislation. Um, unfortunately, it, it puts the rest of the world at hostage to these domestic political battles. And, and, and so the, the, the political science of the debt ceiling is really what drives the, the discussion and the dynamics. No party will ever get rid of the U.S. debt ceiling because it knows that if it's ever in the minority, it can hold up everything um, and, 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 and sort of put pressure on the majority uh, to, to get some of its political agenda passed. So, so that history is something that has plagued the U.S. debt ceiling. Whereas you have other debt ceilings in, in say, the euro area. 60% of GDP was part the mandate from Maastricht, the Maastricht Treaty that put together the euro area and, and allowed the euro to be the common currency for all these European countries. Well, that 60% debt ceiling has consequences because the euro itself is based on having no more debt than 60%. So when Italy and Greece starts to exceed these limits, uh, other countries pull together and force discipline onto mm. Italy or Greece or whatever country is exceeding its share of the debt ceiling. United States, there is no such limit to, uh, that is placed on Congress. It's the two parties debating, and because there's no forceful limit that can be placed on U.S. Congress, no political party will ever allow the debt ceiling discussion to go away. Laura, do you agree with that? Do you agree that this perennial battle is here to stay? I agree that I cannot see <coughs> a circumstance in the near future where, uh, let's be frank, the Democratic Party would have the votes to abolish the debt ceiling. Um, I, and while you have had certainly both parties uh, using it as a partisan tool to uh, show that they would prefer to do spending a different way or do fiscal politics a different way, um, you know, from the other party, uh, you know, I, you, you do, you have had serious voices, including of major party leaders in the Democratic Party recently, uh, be in favor of uh, abolishing it or at least reforming it in a major way. Uh, so I testified to to Congress last February, and you had a number of different bills. Uh, that were had you know been put forward uh, to either abolish it uh, or to you know uh, kind of blunt it as a uh, as a dangerous tool. Um, so you know while it has been used uh, by both parties uh, over time, um, you know I, I wouldn't uh, describe it as being kind of akin to the filibuster as something that you always want when you're um, you know in the in the minority or when you're trying to. Uh, point out that you have a difference of opinion from uh, whoever's in charge. Um, and, you know, I, I do think that there was a missed opportunity for Biden last fall to use the bully pulpit of the presidency uh, to push harder for a potential uh, 
abolition of the debt ceiling or at least some level of reform. I mean, I mean, let's be clear, there are a lot of different ways that we could reform this to be less dangerous than it is right now. I would personally fail, uh, personally fa favor what uh, Secretary Yellen uh, does, which is to get rid of it entirely. Um, but we could, there are, there are lots of different ways of blunting it. Um, to be fair to Biden, Senator Manchin, uh, would, I'm not sure that the votes in the Senate were there, uh, but if ever there were an issue to kind of more stridently campaign on um, and try and try to push for uh, this. This would have been, uh, you know, this this would have been an issue I would have gone to the maps for mm. uh, last fall when they had more democratic votes to to make the attempt. I can see William is still very adamant that there will never ever be, ever be a change to this debt ceiling. But I just want to bring June in lastly because sure, I, I don't foresee I don't foresee them having the votes. Right. Anytime. June, the US is not an island. It's, it, it may be the superpower of the world, but it certainly is influenced by the rest of the world. Is there no pressure that can come from outside the US to force a change, to force some reform, given that its actions does hold the rest of the global financial system to hostage? If the US does not come to a plausible conclusion in resolving this question, I think the the consequences could be quite disastrous, especially for the countries that are holding uh, the U.S. Treasury bills. Uh, chances are uh, it's not going to be the case that the Treasury bonds are secure for investors. And that might impact countries' decisions to keep on buying. And the willingness to buy is the key issue here because uh, previously, there there has been uh, an assured kind of a insurance by buying the treasury bills for these countries, but the scaling back efforts by China and Japan in recent months gives me the sense that uh, depending on the geopolitical situation or geopolitical risk per se, there are chances that countries would not be willing to hold them if they do not desire them, and that would be a conflict very very consequential uh, situation for the United States. Okay, well, we're going to have to leave it there. It has been a great discussion and there's some key dates that we'll definitely be watching out for in the coming months in this ongoing uh, debacle, I think we should call it, in the US. William Lee, Laura Blessing and Jude Park, thank you very much for joining us. This episode was produced by Mohamed Al Aichi, Nihad Al Abedi, Fungi Nguyen, Abla Klar, and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Philip Morrison. The program was edited by Mohamed Sobhi, Lynn Nguyen, and Joda Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Thursday for our next episode. This week on The Take, what's behind the power of the consulting firm McKinsey? And why do so many governments continue to hire them? Find it wherever you get your podcasts.